The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Still a little loud. How's that? Good. Okay. So this talk is about the gaining awareness of the five aggregates of clinging and how that impacts our communication and conflict. The first part is obviously tonight and two weeks. You'll have to come back in two weeks to hear the conclusion. Um, in one of the largest collections of the Buddha's sermons or teachings called the Sam Samyutta Nikaya, uh, the connected discourses of the Buddha and why they're called the connected discourses is because they're chapters that have a theme and in that particular connect collection of the Buddha's teachings one of the chapters has the theme of the five aggregates of clinging there are actually 159 sermons or discourses in that chapter about this one topic it was a major focus of the Buddha's teachings. And the reason it's a major focus of his teachings was because through this distillation of what he calls the aggregates or collections of things, he tells us who we really are and what our experience of life is contained with or a description of our experience of life how we interact with life and I don't know about you but I've been pretty curious about that question my whole life what is my relationship with life what's it all about what am I doing here? What's going on? And why isn't life easier? Why do I always find myself in conflict or situations that are difficult that I have to work my way out of? And it seems to be so for the people around me. Why are they in conflict? And why are they having struggles and situations that they're dealing with? And as you might imagine, as a professional mediator and teacher of mediation, I'm pretty curious about conflict. And I see people in all kinds of different conflicts. So to connect what the Buddha Use to describe our experience of life, it seems pretty clear to me that it involves a description of conflict. And these five aggregates focus on our daily life experience from birth to death. And they're kind of an explanation of his first noble truth. And if you're aware of the Four Noble Truths, the first was the truth of suffering. Our problems, 
our struggles with life. Now, some people mischaracterize Buddha's teachings to be, oh, life is all about suffering and we just focus on suffering. And that's a grave mischaracterization of his teachings because actually what he taught was that there is suffering and how to be free of that suffering, how to relate to and respond to that suffering when it arises. So if you're not familiar with all four of the noble truths, the second one is what's the origin of suffering? And he said that that was because we craved things to be the way we want them to be. And when they are the way they want, we want them to be, we cling to that. And when they're not the way we want them to be, we cling to our objection to the way they are. And that's what causes our suffering. And then he announced in his third noble truth that it was possible not to suffer. The extinction of suffering, the end of suffering. And, he, and that's, of course, good news. How do we get there? How do we go from suffering to understanding the origin of suffering to seeing that, in fact, suffering can end? And that's the fourth noble truth, which is the noble eightfold path of uh, right or wise understanding, wise thought, wise speech, wise action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And he called this path the middle path, which seems an apt description for me because it's not the extreme of suffering that, oh, life is just suffering and I'm going to be stuck with that until I die. It's a way to end that basic human experience. And the five aggregates of clinging are central to his teachings because they actually explain how life works, why our experience is the way it is. Now, none of us, or at least most of us anyway, would not think of operating a computer, let's say, or driving a car, or flying an airplane without reading the instruction manual and learning how to do something as complicated as that. But I've never seen a course offered in any school that I've ever attended from Pickens County, South Carolina to Boston, Massachusetts entitled, This is How Life Works. <laughs> I would have taken that course. I suspect most of you would have taken that course as well if there had been a course offered. And this is how life works. Come to this course and get it all explained to you. And that would have been particularly interesting for me because my parents, my father was a Baptist minister, my parents had a very belief-based approach to life. They believed that their believing in the salvation through Jesus would save them. And that was their answer to the way life worked. And there are millions of people around the world, as we know, whose 
relationship with life is based on beliefs. There are different religious systems. There are different systems that don't have any religion based on I'm going to have as much fun and as much pleasure as I possibly can because I believe that there's nothing but fun and pleasure and then you die. That's one extreme belief system and I think on the other extreme is fundamental religious perspective where I, if I believe this way, I will go to some heaven after I die or some wonderful place. And if I don't believe this way, I will go to some bad place after I die. So the Buddha had a very different approach. He did not offer us a system of beliefs. He did not say, if you believe what I teach, or even more, he did not ever say, if you believe in me, you can find your way to some eternal life or to some better life. He actually said, I'm going to help you understand how life works. And if you follow these practices, if you follow what I teach, you'll see if it works. And if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, try something else. That's a very different approach. And I don't know about you, but I was always curious about and looking for some system that explained to me the way things worked. I kept wondering, why do I keep doing things that don't work? And I keep doing them over and over again, expecting them to suddenly work, but they don't ever work. And I repeat that behavior. It's not very skilled behavior, but I was taught to do it this way, or I look around and everybody else is doing it this way, and it doesn't seem to turn out. And if you have a similar experience, you understand that one reaction is, we are really strange creatures, we human beings. Looking at the news lately is very depressing for me and I suspect for many of you. We see people all over the globe doing horrendous acts of violence in the name of their beliefs because they have a belief-based approach to life. And people being hurt in various ways. Now we have this new virus that's sweeping the globe. All sorts of calamities from the environment. We don't seem to have a good handle on how life works. And that leads us to the five aggregates of clinging. Because according to the Buddha, we are composed of these five aggregates. We have a form, a material form, Right here, we're looking at each other's material form. And we have feelings because there are parts of our material form that feel good, and those are good feelings. There are parts that not, don't feel so good. And the older our material form gets, the more often those not-so-good feelings are, arise, like in my low back and my shoulder and things like that. And we perceive things 
we have the ability to perceive our experience and that those perceptions lead us to various mental formations, ideas, thoughts, concepts, beliefs. Those mental formations we use to guide our life in various ways. And then finally, we have consciousness. We're aware. You see me, I see you. Consciousness. And that these five form feelings, perceptions, concepts, mental formations, and consciousness. Those five aggregates are how we are composed. And they all arise, essentially, together. So when I look out at you, I see your form, I have a feeling about it. It's very pleasant. It's nice to see you all here. I'm glad you're here. So I have a pleasant feeling. And I have a perception of who you are. That you, like me, are wanting to understand life. You're interested in a more conscious and awake approach to life. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. So that's my perception. And I have a mental formation about all that. that that's, that's a good thing. There's a wonderful center here, the Insight Meditation Center, that offers so many teachings and so many different teachers, so many opportunities to learn and study. My mental formation about that is that it's good. I like it. And I know, as soon as I look at you, I know you, I see you. I have conscious awareness of that. In many ways, those five aggregates arise together. They are uh, coterminous. And in a wonderful book called Being Nowhere, Nobody, Going Nowhere, <laughs> I like that title, Being Nobody and Going Nowhere, Meditations on the Buddhist Path by a teacher named Aya Kima. She sort of distills uh, the words of the Buddha in this way. In brief, the five grasp-at groups are suffering. They are as follows. The grasp-at group of the body, our form, our material elements. The group of feeling. The group of perception. The group of mental formations. The group of consciousness. For full knowledge of which... While the exalted one was still alive, he has frequently instructed his disciples in this way. Many times has he emphasized, body is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, mental formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent, body is not self. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. I don't know about you, but when I started meditating back in the 70s, it was actually one pretty hungover, as I recall, Saturday morning, 
I was uh, having coffee at my favorite bookstore in Charleston, South Carolina when I was the public defender there, the first public defender. And I walked down a row of books. Some of you might be too young to know that there used to be a lot of bookstores. <laughs> and I walked down a row of books, a shelf of shelves of books, and I don't know, to this day, I've wondered many times, because this was a pivotal experience in my life, very, very pivotal. And I don't know whether I just slightly bumped the shelf, but a book on yoga literally fell into my hands. And I'd never heard of it, being the good Southern Baptist minister's son. I had never, in South Carolina. <laughs> South Carolina in the 70s? Yoga? You gotta be kidding me. And on the cover was a dude who, now that I think about, was about my age now. And he had hair, though. He had long gray hair. And in his face, he looked pretty old. And he had a robe, and he was sitting cross-legged. And then I opened it up, and he was in all these weird postures. He had on a little pair of shorts, and his body looked much better than mine. And I was 30-something. So I thought, hmm, and I bought it. And I started doing yoga from the book, and it had at the end of the yoga sequence, it had an instructions on something called meditation. And I read the instructions, and then I did my best to meditate and as you, I'm sure, know from your own experience, my mind was going like an electric automatic typewriter. And, hmm, just thinking about that, here I am. Wow. Life is pretty amazing. From that bookstore, and it's still a bookstore. It's now a, that particular location. It's a Catholic church bookstore which is interesting now that I think about it. But <clears throat> I became the first yoga teacher in Charleston. I went away to the Laurentian Mountains in Canada and took yoga teacher's training. It was very good for my law practice, <laughs> as you can imagine. But I'm here. So... How do these seemingly esoteric and strange teachings that we are composed of form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, how does that help us relate to life? In a wonderful book that I highly recommend to you, if you're a serious meditator, or if you're wanting to become one, it's by Joseph Goldstein, one of the founders of uh, the Vipassana tradition here in the U.S. It's called Mindfulness. And he writes, the teachings on the aggregates directly point to the realities underneath 
the surface of self or I or being. Through the investigation of the aggregates, we begin to discover what we really are. So the Buddha taught us these aggregates to understand and analyze our subjective experience of life. How is it that we experience life? We have a relationship with life and most of the time, certainly when we get into conflict or difficulty in our life, it's a mysterious relationship with life. So he said, we have this subjective experience of life and it arises from our relationship with these five aggregates. And it's a way for us to look at and understand our relationship to what we call me. What I call Daniel. How do I relate to this being called Daniel? These teachings were designed to help us live a more skillful life and to release our habit of clinging to the things that we do that don't work. And if you're like me, you know that you've had hopes for happiness and security, you've had hopes for pleasure and joy, and you've seen those hopes arise stay for a while and then pass away. You've had good experiences in life and you've had struggles in life and those have arisen and passed away. And we assume that somehow we're supposed to be in control of our experience of life. That if we just understood it better, we could control things better and it wouldn't have so much suffering and difficulty. That it must be because we didn't get the instruction manual when it was being handed out. I've often wondered, there must have been a time in life when somebody came by and said, here's the instruction manual, and I was asleep, or I missed that class, or I failed to go. There doesn't seem to be one. But perhaps this, this is the instruction manual. And it seems to me, as I've studied the Buddha's teachings that in fact it is. So let's look at this first aggregate, the body, form, the material elements that we are. And here's what, how we can describe them. Whenever we are mindful of a physical sensation, just right now, just notice, the hardness of the chair or the softness the pressure, perhaps some vibration in your body, heat in some part of your body, cold in another part of your body perhaps, lightness, heaviness, maybe you had a big dinner. Whenever you have an experience of the sensations in your body, you are experiencing the aggregate of material form. That's how we know it. Now, we have concepts about our body. One of those is foot. We have a foot. 
but we never experience foot. We might experience, as I'm experiencing right now, a little tingling in my foot because I'm wiggling it. But that's not foot. That's a concept, a mental formation that I have called foot. The only way I ever experience any part of my body is through a sensation, a feeling, tingling, hardness, softness. I can touch it. But when I touch it on my legs, as I'm doing right now, the leg is a concept. I just feel the movement, the sensation of movement of my fingers on my thighs. So we have these sensations associated with our body. And especially we have them when we meditate. And these sensations let us know fairly soon that our experience of our body is often uncomfortable. Now just think about your experience since you've been here tonight. How many times have you moved? Quite a bit. We get restless. We have to move. And especially when we're sitting in meditation and we believe that we're supposed to sit and be perfectly still. So as soon as I sit and I'm supposed to be perfectly still, what arises but a thought in my mind that I need to shift just a little bit. And if I shifted just a little bit, then it would be fine. And I could sit still for the rest of the 30 minutes. Right? Does it work that way? No. Not as far as I can tell. It doesn't. Because when I move, in a little while, some other part of me wants to move. Some other part of me has gotten uncomfortable. Some other... Uh, part is tingling or calling to my attention a sensation up my shoulder or in my neck and I don't know about you but it's the same way for me even when I'm not meditating when I'm sitting at my desk working I may get absorbed in my work for a while and not notice my body not be aware of my body but as soon as I turn my awareness on my body what happens it needs to move doesn't it it's uncomfortable the same way even when I'm asleep sometimes my body's need to move wakes me up and I have to roll over or go to the bathroom and then I get up in the morning and what does my body need? It needs taking care of. It needs to be fed. It wants to be fed. It wants to eat. It wants to have something to drink. It, I've trained it to like coffee. It likes coffee. I, so I need my coffee in the morning. And then what happens? Then we have to take it to the bathroom. It needs to go to the bathroom. And then we like to keep it clean. At least most of us do. And then we have to take it and we have to give it a shower or give it a bath. And the next thing you know, it's hungry again. <laughs> we have to feed it. So we are in constant attention to this material form called the body. 
its requests are endless as far as I can tell. We can never find a position where the sensations, the need to change it, the need to move it, the need to feed it, bathe it, let it go to the bathroom, that those would cease. It is a continual cycle of caring for this body. And the worst of it is constantly trying to adjust our activities to the way the body dictates. Is it ever possible to adjust one's situation totally so that the body feels perfectly all right? Has anybody ever achieved that? I would surely like to know how you did it if you did it. I don't think so. We've never found the situation where the body always feels perfect. There's always a problem. So why, am I po why was the Buddha pointing out the obvious? Because these are his teachings on the first aggregate, the material form. Why is he pointing out the obvious? That we have all this strange relationship to the material form called the body. Because it is endlessly changing. And that, that endless changing we don't like. We want it to be in some perfect way that it never has been nor will be. We look in the mirror and some of us like our body. Most of us don't like our body. We look at it and we say, yep, that's me. But then there's this whole story about what's wrong with our body, how we don't look the way we want to look or should look. We're not handsome enough or pretty enough. We're too fat. We're too thin. Whatever it is. And that relationship with the continual change with the body gives rise to suffering. We're sad. We're unhappy. We struggle. And we expect that it's not going to get old until all of a sudden we wake up and we look in the mirror and I go, wow, who is that? And what have you done with Daniel? Where did he go? Because I don't look like I did when I was walking down that bookstore aisle and the yoga book fell into my hands. I had a nice curly head of hair and I was young and pretty good looking and slim. I don't look like that anymore. And if I cling to that view of Daniel or even then I can recall how much I wanted my body to be different than it was. I wanted to be more handsome. I wanted to be taller. I wanted to be a better athlete. I wanted to be stronger and faster when I was younger. Many of you may have had the same relationship with your body then. You didn't like the way it was.
that caused us to suffer by a deep dissatisfaction with the reality of the way our body is, was, and has turned out to be. And just think for a moment how many hours you've spent trying to improve your body. How many diets you've been on. How many different ways you've approached eating. How many different ways you've tried to dress your body. How many different ways you've tried to get your body to weigh this much or that much. All of the ways that we relate to our body that has a deep level of dissatisfaction. And that's the first noble truth. Life is suffering. And the suffering arises from our attachment to a certain view of material form. And think about this also in relationship to other people in your life. The people that you like who have the kind of body that you aspire to have or that you dislike them because they have the kind of body you aspire to have and how come they got it and you didn't? All of the incredible challenges and struggles we have on this planet because some of us have darker skin than others. And some of us who have light skin believe that that's the only way to have a body and that that's the God-given body and that dark-skinned people aren't even people. That's certainly the belief in my part of the country in the Deep South that I grew up with just because the body was different. So, this simple teaching of the Buddha, we cling to material form and it gives rise to suffering. And just think for a moment the amount of hours and energy each of you have spent worrying about your body, dealing with your body, worrying about other people's bodies, being concerned about the difference between your, your body and other people's bodies, struggling with this simple reality that this is the way it is. And a lot of that is because I identify Daniel with this body. When I look into the mirror and I'm not being awake and alert and conscious, I say, oh, there you are, Daniel. I know you. Oh, my goodness, you're getting old. And then I have this whole story. Or lately, it's you're gaining too much weight. And I have this whole story that goes with that. Are, oh, there's these aches and pains in my body. Because it changes. Over time, it changes. So, there's the constant change, and we struggle with that. And then there's the identification that 
I am this body. Those two elements give rise to our suffering. Given all the changes in my body, which body was actually Daniel? When he was a baby, was that Daniel? When he was a teenager, was that Daniel? And he weighed about 110 pounds? Or now, is this Daniel? It's hard for us, because we cling, because we grasp that things be a certain way, to a concept called Daniel. It's hard for us to accept that that concept isn't permanent and fixed, that it changes over time. And the same thing is true with the second aggregate called feelings. Thich Nhat Hanh teaches there is a river of feelings within us and every drop of water in that river is a feeling. To observe our feelings, we sit on the bank of the river and identify each feeling as it flows by. And the Buddha taught that we have three reactions to feelings. We like them, we don't like them, or we don't care. They're, we have a neutral feeling. We like, we don't like, we don't care. And that feeling tone conditions our reactions. So what do I mean by that? When I look into the mirror and I see this material form that I call Daniel, if I like the way Daniel looks, I feel pleasant. If I don't like it, I feel bad. It's unpleasant. And there again, suffering arises. Because if I like the view of Daniel I see, I want it to stay exactly like that. I liked him when he was 40 and he had hair and he was slim and he was an aggressive, strong lawyer and he had a lot of fun and he could really do yoga and run for miles. That was a good Daniel. I liked that Daniel. What happened to it? It's gone. So if I look back on that from where I sit right now, there is suffering. And when I recall when I was 40 and I was that Daniel, there was a tremendous amount of suffering because he was so unconscious. He was so asleep and so unaware of the impact that his actions had on others. I liked the body, but I didn't like who he was. So there's suffering there as well. And we identify ourselves with those feelings. Even in the way we say them. I am angry. I am sad. I am hungry. I feel badly. I feel good. It's as if Daniel is his feelings. And I'm sure like me, you have friends who are their feelings. They are so engrossed in how they feel 
and so attuned to their feelings and generally so absorbed and self-absorbed in their feelings that being around them is really challenging because the story goes on and on and on about how they're feeling and why they're feeling so bad or why they're feeling so good and why are you feeling good when I'm feeling so bad and all wrapped up in feelings completely absorbed in that world and completely identified with their feelings so some of us and some people you know and I know are completely absorbed in their body taking care of their body having their body look well having their body stay young billions of dollars spent on plastic surgery and face reconstruction and body reconstruction and all kinds of things billions of dollars spent on diets to shape and make the body look better cosmetics all kinds of ways that in our culture we spend money because we want a different relationship with our body so are you beginning to get the picture here of the Buddha's teachings this is the source of our suffering our relationship with these five aggregates the body and the feelings two weeks we'll talk about the other three but I just don't have time tonight so why why is it that we have this relationship as I was preparing this talk I was thinking of a time when I was in South Carolina and I was a public defender and I had a young man that I represented named Robert Lee Robinson and he was always in trouble for various crimes mostly stealing things and it's pretty unusual as a public defender that you have trials you know 70 80 percent of the cases people are either released and go home because there's evidence that they weren't guilty or they plead guilty to some crime so it's unusual to have a trial and because the state has so much leverage and so much resources most of the trials when there are trials are because the crimes are pretty bad and the people are convicted but Robert Lee had some kind of karma he and I together we had over the course of several years we had five jury trials for felonies which are serious crimes and five times Robert Lee walked out of the courtroom a free man the last of those five trials Robert Lee was caught in a laundry a dry cleaners turning in his coat to be dry cleaned with rings in the pocket of the coat from the jewelry store he was charged with robbing 
and rings on his fingers. And he walked. He left the courtroom a free man. And when I look back and think about those times, my feelings are sort of a mixture of pleasant and unpleasant. The pleasant part is that I was... <clears throat> is this the pleasant part? Yes, it is the pleasant part. I, I can remember thinking... What a terrific lawyer I was. <laughs> and boy, my ego was just humongous. But when you're a lawyer and when you're in court, you need a terrific ego to withstand what that intense mental game is about. And you also need an ego not to get beaten down by the incredible human suffering that is evident in a criminal court, any kind of court, but especially a criminal court, on all sides, the police, the defendants, and especially the victims of crime. Incredible suffering. Exactly the kind of suffering that the Buddha was teaching with the five aggregates. Because they all arise from the clinging to the material form of bodies and to our feeling reaction to what those bodies do. And especially in a state like South Carolina where racial prejudice is so high, the vast majority, probably 80, 90% of my clients were African American. And the prejudice was so deep and strong that I could feel very righteous and good about myself for having gotten Robert Lee to walk. Five, five out of five. And he wasn't the only client that I represented that walked. Lots of them walked. I was good at it. And then something happened. It was several years after I left the public defender. My law partner was a state senator and in South Carolina, the state senators appoint the judges. So I went from being a public defender, the scourge of the courtroom, where judges don't give you anything, to being the partner of a state senator who appointed all the judges, and so they would give me anything. It was a very strange transition, and the lack of integrity in it is a big reason that I'm sitting here with you tonight. I could not abide it. But there was a pivotal point that really changed me and started me on the discovery that led me here, that led me to see 
when I look back on it, what the Buddha was pointing to about the suffering that we create for ourselves by holding on to this physical body form and the physical body forms of others as if they should be a certain way and as if we could hold on to them, they would stay that way and they wouldn't change. We won't change. We'll stay this way. We'll be this way. And our feelings about that, how we react to it, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling we have of it. So I'm in my law office one day and in comes a potential new client who was head of the Longshoremen's Union in South Carolina. And at that time in the 80s, the federal government was investigating the Longshoremen's Unions for corruption up and down the East Coast. And he was being investigated. So he came and talked to me and asked me to represent him. And I listened to his story and we made an arrangement and I agreed to represent him. And as he was leaving, I asked him, as I always did with a new client, how did you come to me? And he said, oh, you don't remember me. And I was a little taken aback, and I had a vague sense that I knew him, but I said, no, I'm sorry, I, I really don't. And he described that last Robert Lee Robinson trial. Do you remember that case where the young man had rings from the jewelry store on his fingers and in the pockets of his coat? And inside I'm going, oh, yeah, all right, yeah. <sighs> yes, he's coming to me because I'm such a good lawyer and he saw me try that case and what a good job. He said, I was on the jury. Oh, yeah, I was on the jury. He says, yeah, Thursday, Thursday of the trial, the day before the case went to the jury on Friday, I looked out into the courtroom and I saw two FBI agents. And I figured they were coming for me. And the next day on Friday, I looked out and they were still there. So when the case went to the jury, it was 11 to 1 for conviction. And I held out because I didn't want to go out and get arrested. <laughs> and it was, it was Friday afternoon, and so the jury eventually swung and voted to acquit. So you can imagine... <laughs> the pen that went into the balloon of my ego about this material form called Daniel. Now, on the other side of the coin, he did come to me to ask me to represent him, and I did represent him. <laughs> but thankfully, I will never forget hopefully, that moment. 
I can still see myself standing in that particular office with him telling me that. And how does it relate to the aggregates? Because it was a time when looking back on it, I can see that life interrupted my unconsciousness. And that I got there was something going on in life that I didn't understand. That it wasn't just about me. And the fundamental way that the Buddha taught that we create our suffering by clinging to these aggregates is that we make it be about me each of us this body is me and when it gets sick or doesn't look so good or gets fat or gets thin or hurts or aches Daniel is sick thin fat hurting aching and so Daniel suffers when Daniel feels inflated and self-important he feels good and when someone walks into his office and punctures that inflation and self-importance, he feels bad. The first feeling is very pleasant. The second feeling is very unpleasant. Regardless of whether I identify with the pleasant or the unpleasant, whether I cling to either or both, ultimately I suffer. And so do you. That's the teachings of the Buddha in the five aggregates. So the issue then becomes, how do we use that knowledge to gain freedom from the suffering? That's how the suffering arises. How do we gain freedom from it? It's time to go home. <laughs> and as you can tell, I'm a good storyteller. And I know how to create a little tension. <laughs> but seriously, thank you for attention, for your attention. Thank you for being here. And I promise two weeks from tonight to do my best to help you and me understand how this dilemma can be resolved. But I'll tell you the answer right now in case you can't come back. <laughs> Fundamentally, what the Buddha teaches us is to gain awareness that that's what we're clinging to. And to see that that means we're clinging to something that is so evanescent as to be impermanent. I thought that my self-inflated wonderfulness was permanent. It was who I was. And when it got punctured, that was devastating. And I'm sure you have had similar, if perhaps a little less dramatic, experiences so we recognize 
that that's the cause of our suffering and that impels us to practice, to sit and meditate and contemplate and practice, to find our way through the path of the Eightfold Noble Path to freedom. And that's what we'll talk about last next week, two weeks from now. So let's sit for a moment. So just allow to pass through your mind's eye the ways in which you identify yourself with both the triumphs and good things in your life and the struggles and the not so good things. And get that the Buddha is telling us that that's not who we are. Neither the triumphs and the good things nor the struggles, and the bad things. We're not that. We're also not the feelings associated with those triumphs and those struggles. On both ends of the pleasant, unpleasant spectrum, we're not that either. And just sit with that mystery and carry that mystery that paradox home with you. Allow it to stir your mind and challenge your heart as you live into that paradox. Thank you very much for being here tonight.